Mm, he's good, church. He's good. Uh, man, we are glad to have you. Welcome in to Lindsay Lane North. Welcome to our 1030 service. Uh, we're so glad to have each and every one of you here, whether you're joining us in person. We know we've got some families as well that are joining us online as well, whether you are checking us out for the first time or the 101st time. Welcome in. Uh, before we get started today, I want to bring your attention to some things. Man, we're excited about what God's doing in this church. We're excited about what God did in this building last night. Uh, we had our Christmas house uh, last night, our first ever uh, Christmas house celebration. We brought some families in. We ministered. Some of you, many of you brought food. Uh, we will support 22 different families in the Elkmont, immediate Elkmont area that, that needed assistance uh, with a, a Christmas meal. Uh, we had over half of those that came last night. Uh, I'll tell you this, we did a Christmas concert for them and a lot of what we are doing. Uh, next week is uh, what they did that night. And I'm uh, last night, you don't want to miss it. Dude, it is lock-up jam. I mean, it is fantastic. So don't miss next week. Don't forget to wear your tacky sweater next week. We will be giving away uh, uh, the, whoever has the tackiest, the ugliest of sweaters. We've got some great gifts that we've got in the work for you. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing that and just having a great time as we celebrate Christmas together. And so I uh, know it's going to be a big Sunday. Excited for that. But we're excited about what God's going to do today as well. And so uh, what I want to do as well is bring your attention to something else. When, for those of you that are meeting in our groups, you know that last week was our last week to meet, unless you're going rogue, and I don't know if there's another group that's growing rogue or something like that. But last week was our official last week of, uh, of our studies uh, until we reload in January. You'll be hearing more about that in our announcements. But uh, I want to bring your attention to some volunteers that, man, I don't know what I'd do without them. When we first started groups, our biggest question was, what do you do with the kids? Um, it just is. It's a logistical problem, and we, we struggled to find the solution. We played with about four different things. COVID didn't help things, right, making that, that transition. And so um, this before this semester, uh, our leader for home groups approached me to take a break from leading a home group to leading our children's ministry. And his vision was to provide an incredible worship environment for our kids, kindergarten through fourth grade. He also got our other, some other parents involved, other people involved in that. And I want to bring your, I want you to know who they are. Man, I am so thankful for what they did this semester, and we're just going to celebrate that. So uh, I'll some of them may not be here. They were here in the first service. They may not be here in the second service. I've already given them their gift. Um, but I just want to give you an opportunity to recognize them. Jeremiah, would you come forward? Jeremiah and Sarah, his wife, man, he is over our, he's our group's coordinator and over our media team and over a, over a bunch of stuff, right? And he kind of does a little bit of everything. He's my details guy and every big picture guy needs a details guy and he's that for me. And so, uh, man, I'm so thankful for him. It was his vision to launch this and man, we have provided an incredible thing. If your ch children don't come to 
our centralized childcare on Wednesdays, man, they need to. If your group meets on Wednesdays, man, take advantage of that. It is cool. My seven-year-old is like blaring whatever song that they sing. He is blaring it at the top of his lungs on the way home after groups. So it's really, really neat what they provide. And the couple that really helps him to pull that off is uh, Bailey and Matthew Lee. So if you guys can come, my seven-year-old has reported that Bailey's sound sings like an angel. That's his exact words. She sings like an angel, Daddy. Now, she said Jeremiah's voice was a, just a little bit less than that, so a little less than angelic, uh, Jeremiah. Uh, but, uh, but these are the couples that, that, that pull off that on Wednesday nights for us. They went caroling last Wednesday night. It was, that was really cool. Kids had a great time with that. And then our preschool uh, is, is led by Heather Brown. So she, she's not here. Uh, she was here in the first service. But Heather Brown leads that. So when you see her, man, she does a great job getting that lined up and everything going on. We are so thankful for this brand new ministry. And this was just launched this, uh, this last semester. So y'all give them a hand and let them know how much we appreciate them. Thank you guys so much. We, we as a church need to do a better job of celebrating wins, celebrating what God is, is doing in our church and celebrating when God meets needs. And so we're going to be doing, I promise you as your pastor in this new year, that we're going to do a better job of encouraging and celebrating uh, what God is, is doing. And that ministry has just been such a godsend uh, for us. But open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, we're in the middle of our series entitled Clothed, leading up to Christmas. What it means for God Almighty to clothe us. And we are clothed in his righteousness. Last week we talked about how our rags are exchanged for his robes of righteousness. This is a picture we see in the Old Testament. We see it in the New. We're going to see it today. We see it uh, in, in the Revelation, right? So from the beginning to the end, we see this idea of God exchanging our filth for his perfection and his purity. And so today, we're going to take that a little bit further. We're, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22 talking about the parable of the wedding feast. November 13th, 2010, was an important day for me. Do you remember what time it was? Okay. Four o'clock. Uh, I knew, no, it was about 30 seconds, our service started about 30 seconds after Cam Newton had completed his comeback win of Georgia, not Alabama, of Georgia, uh, because my groomsmen were all around, because I surround myself with Auburn people, whatever, uh, <laughs> I, but he, uh, they, he literally, they're watching on their phone, they celebrate, throw their phone, they don't have time to put it back in their pocket, and they walk out to my wedding, but that's not why, it's because I got the opportunity in front of our friends and family to commit my life forever to this beautiful woman that you saw on the screen and that is here sitting on the front row. Uh, that is when Rebecca Ann Warren and I became man and wife. And we got a picture of that, celebrating that day. Uh, this, was, this was our wedding day, right? This was our wedding day. This was a celebration of us and our lives together. But all of you know, that is not all that goes on with wedding preparation. Am I right? There are things 
logistical things that have to be accomplished, right? There's a ceremony that has to be planned. Things like exchanging rings, right? There's purchases that have to be made, right? We can live on love, but I need something on that, some shiny on that finger, right? And there's, there's, there's rings that have to be purchased. There's uh, a service that has to be planned. Y'all, I had four pastors that were a part of officiating my service. All of them played integral roles in my life, and I saw them as essential. My wife saw it as overkill, but whatever. Uh, four pastors that have to be contacted that we have to get there to celebrate the union of our lives together. There's other things that happen. There's things like decorations. I'll never forget. The call that woke me up on my wedding day was not, Alan, we're so excited for you, was not praying for you, no, 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 none of those things. It was a call of sheer panic because overnight, the bridesmaids' flowers had wilted. The canna lilies had completely fallen like in half, like irreparable. We have chaos. And I'll never forget my mom and grandma driving to Michael's and building a bouquet for all of the bridesmaids. Oh, they did a decent job. But decorations, right? That is stress. Would you agree? Keep going. Y'all, you get this many people in a room together, it's bound to be exciting, right? This isn't, and let me tell you, young men, young ladies, a wedding, a marriage is not you marrying another person, right? You marrying the whole motley crew, all right? You you marrying marrying the whole family, and it don't matter how far you live away, they'll find you, all right? They will find you. This family, it's about getting family together. And when there's family together, there's things like sickness. I'll never forget, we had bridesmaids that walked down the aisle, walked out and went to the bathroom to be sick, right? Like uh, we, had, we had grandparents that had taken things in order to get through the day that they had adverse ref- uh, uh, reactions to. Like it was crazy. It was chaos. It wasn't just about cute little Alan and Becca. Like this was... This was, there was serious, significant stuff going on. What else? Right? There's a reception that's got to be planned. It can't just be about the celebration. Hey, they're together. Woo. We got to go and celebrate, right? We got to go. We got to go to this new venue because that, the, you know, one venue just wasn't acceptable. We got to go to another venue. We've got to have cake. We've got to do this whole process, right? There's a system. There's a cadence, to a wedding. First we cut and introduce the bride and groom and then we cut the cake and then we do the bouquet and then we do the garter and then they do their first dance and then we do the father-daughter dance and then we do the mother's... There's this whole thing, right? And for an Ostrisky wedding, it's not a party. It's not an official wedding until my grandfather does the twist. That's random. I get that. But my grandfather has to do the twist. And so until Pap does the twist, nobody leaves. Nobody, right? Because that's an unspoken rule for us. And then we do really crazy things. We have really crazy traditions like taking a beautiful Mustang that I miss dearly. And because my groomsmen were dumb and didn't bring any windshield chalk, they decided to use Crisco-based icing that my mom had left over from the wedding cake on my car that baked for a week and then ended up in me breaking the back windshield of my ragtop trying to get it off the next week. Welcome back from your honeymoon, right? Uh, we do crazy things, right? Like you can't just drive off in, an, in a car. 
You have to have embarrassing things done to your car, right? We have these weird traditions because your wedding is more than just you and the other person. The Jews had a similar thing. They had a similar cadence that they would follow in the wedding process. Today, we are talking about the wedding feast, but understand, that is just the last phase of this utenanny, right? Like, this is the last part of it. Because what would happen is, once they were betrothed, they were under, the man and the woman were betrothed, they were under the chuppah of marriage, they were under the canopy or the covering of marriage, the man would go, he'd prepare a place in his father's house. He would prepare a chamber for them to be man and wife together and live together in. And the woman would go and make herself ready as we talked, right? That we don't make ourselves ready. God is the one who prepares us, who makes us ready. It's his righteousness that we clothe ourselves in waiting for the groom, right? And so then the, when, the, when the groom is finally finished, he would gather his groomsmen and they would have a parade to the bride's house. He would shout, and there would be trumpets, and there would be shofars, and there would be a sounding of, 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 of parties and, and all kinds of celebration. They'd get to the bride's house, and he'd call to the bride. The bride would come out of her chamber, and the, the groomsmen would go and literally carry the, the bride to the groom. Literally carry. That's where the whole Jewish thing where they're on the... On the chairs thing. That's where that comes from. They would carry the bride to the groom. And then they would have a parade all the way back to the father's house. Where they would come under the physical canopy. But the metaphorical canopy of marriage. They would do really romantic things like sign paperwork. A ketubah. A marriage contract. And then they would go and they would consummate the marriage. A little strange. The whole family's waiting on them. Um, Odd, odd, odd placement there in my, in my mind. Uh, but when the, when the marriage would be consummated, the bride and groom would come out. And here we go. Wedding feast, seven days of spectacular partying. Seven days where, matter of fact, many of the Jewish laws were paused in order for them to observe a wedding feast. So wedding feast trumped all. It was the highest time on the Jewish schedule. We, if there is a wedding feast, we want to be a part of it. And so Jesus, knowing that the Jews understand this, wrote in Matthew, which Matthew is writing to the Jews. It is writing, it's a very Jewish letter to the Jews to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. He's the promised one from the very beginning, all the way back uh, to Genesis 3.15, right? That he is the seed of woman that will crush the head of the serpent. All the way back from the very beginning, he is the Messiah. And in that, we find Jesus' parable on the wedding feast. Matthew 22, verse 1 through 7. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, as if they had better things to do. You see, the wedding feast would have been the excused absence. Students, 
right? You get off of work for the wedding feast. They would allow that, especially in Jewish culture. But no, 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 there was too much work to be done. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. At best, they flippantly disregarded them and pretended like they had other things better to do. And at worst, they took them and killed them. The king was angry. Makes sense. And he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Father, give us understanding of your word. Illuminate it to us. Lord, we know that truth is truth, but God, I pray that you would reveal truth through your word and the ministry of your Holy Spirit today. Father, we love you and we thank you for what you're going to teach us. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. See, what we see here, number one, is that we see the king inviting the uninterested. These are the uninterested. These were the ones, these were the select group that he had in mind from the very beginning. Hey, when my son gets married... Once they have come together, once they are man and wife, when we throw the wedding feast, we want these folks to be here. These were the people, they were proactive. They had told about the wedding feast. And as soon as the time came, he sent out his messengers all over the place to invite them to come. This is third of three parables that Jesus is speaking to the religious rulers of the day. They are some of the most controversial things that he will ever say to the religious leaders. The first one that we find in in Matthew 21 is the parable of the two sons. And the general gist was there was one son that the father came to him and said, hey, there's work to be done in the field. And the son said, nah, I don't feel like it. But somewhere along the line, he realized, man, I probably should help. And he decides, has a change of heart, and decides to go and complete whatever task it is that his father's given him to do. He said, and then there's a second son. There's a son who, upon being told what to do, said, yeah, pops, I got this. Yeah, leave it to me, no problem, I'll take care of it. And then he never showed up in the field. What he was saying was, The Jewish people were the second son. They were the son that were supposed to be close to God. They were the sons that were supposed to be in obedience to him. And they said all the right things, but they never got it done. And he even said, even the prostitutes and tax collectors have come to do my work before you guys. Right? Controversial stuff to the religious elite of the day. Would you not agree? He then goes on and tells them the parable of the tenants, saying there was a man, a master, who prepared a beautiful vineyard. And he left and he put some tenants in charge. And when the time of harvest came, he sent messengers and said, hey, give the fruit to the master. He's ready to get a return on what you've done. But the tenants wouldn't give him the fruit. The tenants instead took the messengers and they killed him. To which he sent more messengers. To which they responded in kind. They took them and they killed them. And then he said, "Uh, I'll just send my boy. I'll send my son. And surely, knowing that he's the heir, my heir, they'll treat him right. No, they took him and they killed him. Right? Not ending well for these tenants. In the same way, he said, these Jewish people. Who I send messengers to over and over again because they didn't like the message that was communicated 
they killed the messenger. They persecuted the prophets that were before. Remember that was what he said of his disciples. He said, look, if they hated me, know they hate, they, they hate you, know that they hated me first, right? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you, right? You keep killing the messengers, right? And then now the son has come. And what is Jesus prophesying? He's prophesying that he would in fact be killed by the Jews, by the very people that claim to have watch care over the vineyard, to be looking out for the interests of the king. And so we find ourselves in this passage, right, that details in even greater detail now. All of these are showing Israel's rejection of what God was really trying to do. But here is just the peace de resistance of the whole teaching. This is exactly the point that he's arriving at. In this parable, the history of Israel's rejection is documented. Servants are sent two times. Once in general and then once detailing what the king had prepared. Hey, you don't understand, buddy. You need to come. I've got a fatted calf. I've got a bouncy house. I've got cotton candy. And it's going to be great, right? Like we've got it. Lockdown, it's going to be fun. Who in the world wouldn't come to that? The answer is nobody. It makes sense to enjoy the blessings of the king. That just makes sense. But no, they responded differently. At best, flippantly disregarding, and at worst, even killing the messengers that came to proclaim a message of blessing. Come and enter the wedding feast. So this describes the situation that Israel finds himself in. They are dejected as a people. They are living in the promised land under captivity of Rome. They are broken down. And you, you know how, like when somebody says something to you and you know there's a little truth to it, how it stings a little more? And you may not admit it, but sometimes when you hit a nerve with somebody, you can tell, can't you? Jesus is all up on their nerves, all right? He is, he is jump roping with their nerves, right? Like he is, he is reiterating to these religious rulers that claim to have an association with Jesus, that claim to be as close to Jesus as anyone in the world or to, of God, to God than anyone else in the world, and he's telling them your end is destruction. The very people that are supposed to be close to God are not even showing up for things that God is doing. And so they're in a state of repair, and, and ultimately their end will be what? Destruction. How does he say? They were destroyed, they destroyed the murderers and burned their city. They'll be destroyed in fire. Whew. To say that to the religious elite, Jesus was getting a point across. But ultimately, everything in the Old Testament points to Christ in the New Testament, right? And so he was saying, you've missed the point entirely. Because the Messiah didn't look the way that they wanted the Messiah to look. They rejected even the son of the king. He's not just rejecting messengers anymore. Now you're rejecting the son. We are having a problem. And here's the point in your notes. The refusal of the son forfeits the reward of the king. 
To reject the son is to reject the king. Of course, anybody would want to experience the blessings of a king. But that only comes by means of coming to honor the son. And so there, that was a, that was a non-negotiable for them. They could not follow Christ. They could not follow this Messiah. They were too stuck in their ways. And the very thing that they thought was keeping them close to God was in fact driving a wedge between them and God. They were so busy doing so many religious things that in their religion they'd become prideful. And their righteousness was, their, their, what they supposed to be righteousness was only self-righteousness. And was pulling them away from the reward of the king. So the Jewish people would have considered themselves deeply religious and totally set apart to God. These are God's chosen people. The name Israel means, Yisrael means God prevails. right? So the name of the people of God, that if God prevails, they're saying, you're not going to be with God. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying in this parable. To tell them they would miss the fellowship of heaven, the wedding feast, right? We, we saw that picture in, the, in, in Revelation 19 last, last week. To tell them they're not invited to the wedding feast anymore would be a terrible thing for them to hear. It would have been immensely divisive and extremely controversial. But the king didn't just invite those that were uninterested. Had better things to do, the king also invited the undesirable. The undesirable... Matthew 2, verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those, but those invited were not worthy. That is a key phrase. Those who were invited were not worthy. Those that had power, that had prestige, that had a name, the lords, the, the ladies of the land, those that had money, these people, born royal, were not worthy. Go. Therefore, to the main roads and invite the wedding feast, to the wedding feast, as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads. This, this word picture is meaning the populous center of the world, of, of, of the community, right? Go to the roads, go to where everybody converges, and, gather, and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So messengers were sent out a third time. And this time, those that were selected, those that were held in high regard, these people were not worthy all of a sudden. The ones that thought they had it all together, if there's anybody worthy, it's these that have been invited. The king says, no, because of their actions, they've proven they're not worthy. You don't get the reward of a king if you're not willing to honor the son. They're unworthy. And so the undesirable, the riffraff, the homeless guy on the street corner, right? The, the, the orphan children, right? The old lady, the young man, the, everybody, every denomination of person. It is an all call in the populous center of the community. Come. And be a part of the wedding feast. You know what it says? It says good and bad came. That means those that people went, mm, you, you sure we're going we gonna to go with him? You sure you don't mind being around her? Those that came with strings attached. Those that came with baggage. Those that came with reputation. 
all were invited, good and bad. In your notes, our worth, remember the others, we're not worthy. Our worth is assigned by God, not acquired by man. My friend, you can work your whole life to try to produce some type of value for yourself. But the best that you have is always going to be dirty rags. It's always going to be that way. But God has issued an invitation. The king, our king, has issued an invitation. And you're not disqualified by your past. You're not disqualified by your present. We have a king that has issued an invitation to come as we are. This is a story from the beginning. What did he tell Abraham? Abraham, through you and your seed will all the nations of the world be blessed. Yeah, the gospel came first to the Jewish people and came through. Jesus came through. He was born a Jew, right? Born Hebrew. But the Hebrews rejected him. And so this wedding feast that was for the invited, because of their rejection, now it's gone to all nations. Everyone is invited in. Why? Because they've received the invitation. The good and the bad were invited, and the bad and the good came to honor the Son. Thirdly and finally, he didn't just invite the uninterested. He didn't just invite the undesirable. The king invited the unacceptable. Now, that sounds weird, does it not? And it sounds like we should tie a bow on the whole parable and go, Jesus invites all the nations. The end. Right? Jesus does something weird here. He pivots. And I believe his teaching is so important to where we are today. He invited the unacceptable. Read with me in verse 11. Before we we try to find some clarification what God is teaching through this. Read verse 11 with me. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man. Now, a man that got the all-call invitation. Everybody's welcome. Come on. Here's an invitation. He saw a man. This seems so weird to me. Who had no wedding garment. He might be homeless. Like, Come on, right? And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He had no leg to stand on. He had no reason. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Does that Does that stick in some of your crawls like it does mine? It sticks there, doesn't it? Everybody come. Hey, you ain't got the right clothes on. Now, in a Western civilization, a 21st century church, we might look at that and go, well, he must not have looked good enough. He must not have had the nicest clothes on. So he was unaccepted. But to draw that conclusion is to miss Jewish custom. When a wedding feast was thrown with the invite, in fact, sometimes the invite was wedding garments. 
the master, the person throwing the party, would give out wedding garments. Sometimes they were nice. Sometimes they were just a certain color, right? I want everybody to match, everybody to look good. Because it's not just about you being there, making a statement with whatever fashion you decide to show up in. What is the ultimate reason for the wedding feast? Everybody together, what's the reason? To celebrate the sun, right? It's not about the attendees. The attendees are there to honor the sun. So does it not make sense that those that would come would come under the terms that the king has dictated? More than likely in this story, as people think they would have known what it was like to receive a wedding garment, to put it on even though it looked ugly, even though it didn't fit just right, right? Every bridesmaid in the world, right? Even though it didn't fit just right, even though it didn't look good, it wasn't a very flattering color on them. They wore it because they recognized it was not about them. If nothing else, the king would have made those garments available at the door. So whether this guy chose to sneak around the back, whether this guy just chose to blatantly disregard the dress code, the point is this man who had received all call did not come in the terms that the king had dictated and therefore he was an imposter. Can I tell you something? Everything that you need will be provided by God. Let the gravity of that statement sink in. Everything you need. The king didn't just kill the fatted calf. He didn't just make all the preparations. He didn't just send out the invite. He provided the garments. All that was incumbent on those that would attend was to come in the terms that he dictated. Everything we need is provided by our king. I'll tell you where I'm at, where I was. I'll tell you where I was, and you may be thinking, well, you hadn't, you hadn't been there long. Just wait a second. I'm telling you, I've been delivered from this. I have been delivered. It was Monday morning. I spent 30 minutes crying into my hands. I got up, and I was different. When we launched Lindsay Lane North, I desired to be the leader that led out front, that led in industry. If there was something to be done by our church, dadgum and I was going to be there, right? And I was going to be one of those leaders, those servant leaders, that there's nothing too demeaning of a task. And, and I, I wanted to move right along with the people. And that hasn't changed in my heart. I, I want to be a servant leader. That's biblical, okay? Do you know my greatest calling as a pastor is not to lead an industry? It's not for you to see me leading out front. You know the greatest posture I can take as your leader? In complete desperation.
for a long time, I believed it was noble for me to bear the weight of all the issues of the church on me because I am the pastor. God has given me this church to lead. Can I tell you what is stressful? It is stressful carrying something that was never meant for you to carry. Why would I lead? Why would I carry the weight of something that is not mine? This is not my church. This church is not my bride. It is Christ's church. So if we are to accomplish anything worth a hill of beans in eternity, it's not going to be on my power. It's going to be on his. And if it's going to be accomplished on his power, this is what posture I should take. Stress is the result of when we refuse to give what God desires to have to him. Do you know why you're stressed out about your job? you know why you're stressed out about your kids? you know why you're stressed out about your family? Because you have failed to hit your knees and surrender it to Jesus. And listen, this is all over Scripture. This is all over it. Come ye, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if that makes sense, if that's important for the people in the pews, it's so much more vital for the one here in the pulpit. But I, in my hubris, in my pride, I adopted a posture of these invited guests of the Jewish people and thought that if I did enough, if I bore enough, that we would get from point A to point B. And we might get there, but it is not where God would have us. And so you, in this room, may be stricken with stress stricken with worry and anxiety. That weight wasn't meant for you. And the who would not respond to this? Who would not come to this? If we will give it over and we will recognize that everything we need will be provided. Does it not make sense to not seek the provision for ourselves and seek the provider? So as a church, I want you to know, I as your pastor, I, I, my, my staff thinks I've lost my mind probably. I called them all in on Monday. All, all four of the, the guys that I lean on very, very heavily in the leadership of our church. And, and I just explained to them. I was like, I don't know what you're doing. You just got to get here Monday. We got to talk. The greatest thing I can do for you as your leader is not to lead in industry. It's to lead in intimacy. 
And so before God, that's what I seek to do as your leader. Things are changing in my heart and in my life. Jesus, or Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I ain't there. Y'all keep imitating Paul because I ain't there. All right? But that's where I seek to be. That I'm so close to Jesus that you just see Christ all over it. Don't wear the weight of things that are not yours to wear. The response of a child of God is dependence. If we understand our dependence on him, we will understand we will understand that he is enough to meet all of our needs. Everything that you need will be provided by God. So, let's get to know him. Let's spend time with him. Let's reach for him. Let's seek him while he may be found. Let's spend time in desperation in prayer. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. One of the young friends of his said, hey, uh, Pastor Spurgeon, uh, what, is your, what is your prayer habits like? And he said, well, every morning I wake up and I pray an hour. He goes, oh, that, that's fine. That's fine. That's good. That's good. I'm glad you do that. Um, but what do you do when you're really busy? Like, like, I mean, you've got more than the normal amount of stuff to do. You've got a lot to do. You know, what Char- you know what Charles Spurgeon said? He said, well, on normal days, I pray an hour. When i got a whole lot to do, I pray three. We're not in the business of providing for ourselves. We never have been. So what are we doing to approach him? Dads, you can leave a lot of legacies for your kids. You'll leave a legacy. You can lead a legacy of a provider, one who stays up late and, go, and gets up early and is grinding all day to make ends meet for your family. You can leave a legacy of a family man, right, of one that aligns things correctly, and spends time with their family. You can be someone who leads a legacy of sports for your children, pushing them to excel in athletics. Or, or, instead of providing for yourself and for your family, you can lead a legacy of God providing for them. What's the takeaway for your kids? Do you know what I believe Hudson and Cooper would say if if, if they really had to say what daddy was all about? He was all about the church. He wasn't about God. He wasn't about Jesus. He wasn't about spending time with him. He was about doing church things. But we respond to the provider and we'll realize our provision is made. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it has a bounding clarity in my life. And it's always been there, and I'm a dummy, but I have never made the connection from my head to my heart. The king's invitation in your notes is to the guests, but it's for the son.
That is why we are here. It is good news. That invitation is good news for us as unworthy guests. But it is ultimately not about us. We are there to honor the Son. So we walk in step with Him. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If you can't tell, it's where I'm at. And I would seek to lead a church that would be in the same place. Come ye all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The result of intimacy is rest. The result of doing a whole bunch of stuff outside of that is ruin. In an effort to be so close to God, the Jewish people missed God because they missed the Savior. They missed the Son. Don't be guilty of the same. I pray that you would respond today in obedience to Him. I know it's late, but I just believe there's somebody that this message was for. He can clothe you, but it requires surrender of yourself. If you're here and you need to make whatever decision you need to make for God today, I don't want you to bear the weight of that. I don't want you to bear the stress of that. I just want you to respond in intimacy with God. Respond to a God that invites you to a place you don't have any business being in a right relationship with him. And if you're here and you need to respond to that for the first time and you need Christ to save you from your sin, I want to invite you to that. In just a moment, when I say amen, you have the opportunity to come. We've got counselors that are here. I would love to talk with you about any decision that you need to make for the Lord. Don't put it off. Don't hesitate. Respond. You know what? I am... Six-day-old living proof, you're not going to regret it. God will provide for all of your needs. Respond to that in freedom today. God, move in the hearts of your people. May we never be the same. Convict hearts. Let us leave to serve you. Be with the one that's wrestling with whatever decision they need to make today. May they give it to you. We love you. Thank you for your love that has pursued us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? This is your invitation. Time for you to respond. Whatever it is that you need to respond. This altar's open. You can lay down these, these burdens right now. Whatever it is, would you come?